Hello and welcome to episode 103 of the Conversations with Ross podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Michael Brandt. Michael is the co-creator of Chicago Fire. New episodes of Chicago Fire return to NBC Tuesday, January 7th at 10 p.m. Michael has also co-written the screenplays for Wanted, 310 to Yuma, and Too Fast, Too Furious. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Michael W. Brandt. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Happy to be here. Thanks. Well, Michael, let's start at the beginning. Tell me what initially attracted you to writing in the first place. Well, I went to film school. I actually went to Baylor, and uh, that's where I met Derek. And I thought I wanted to be in television. I really, I, I did everything from Baylor baseball on the radio as a broadcaster to I was doing, worked for a local CBS affiliate in Waco. And I remember it was a very specific moment. We spent all week working on a, a story on a local high, high school football team. And uh, that episode, or the episode, see, I'm already caught up in TV now. That uh, story ran on a Friday afternoon at 6 o'clock. I remember telling all my friends, you got to tune in. been working on this all week. It ran. I came home, and I said to my friends, did you see it? And they all said, oh, we forgot to turn the television on. And it was at that moment I, <laughs> I realized I wanted to do things that would last longer. I didn't want to just throw stuff out in the, in the airwaves. I wanted to, at the time, make make things that would be on blockbuster shelves forever. So... I signed up for a screenwriting class the next semester, and um, that's when I ran into Derek. Now, do you come from a theatrical or a creative family? What do your parents do for? What did your parents do for a living when you were growing up? Yeah, not not anything theatrical or creative. My, my dad owned his own business, and it was certainly not part of my life growing up. I mean, I went to movies like everybody else and grew up on Spielberg and Lucas. But I just I like the escapism of it all. Um, but nothing nothing specific drove me there, other than the idea of knowing. I didn't want to wear socks to work for a living. Like I literally, at some point, I was—I think I was like 13. I said, I just want a job where I can—I may want to wear socks, but I don't want to have to wear socks. And like I just couldn't imagine being a businessman. So I was just looking for something else at the time. I think you definitely wear socks in Chicago, though. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. The first—the first few episodes we shoot, you can't believe how hot it is, and then pretty soon it turns incredibly cold. And last week we were there shooting, and you know, we were shooting nights and. And, you know, it's like zero degrees, and the crew's out there all night. And I think last year in 24 episodes, we didn't, I don't think we missed a day due to weather. I mean, regardless of the weather, we go out and shoot. Tell me about the transition from you're at film school, you meet Derek, you both want to be screenwriters at this point, but a lot of people are in film school who want to be screenwriters. How do you actually make that transition from wannabes to professionals? Well, it's, when I started, when I graduated from undergrad, I was looking at all the big, big film schools, you know, the, the USC and NYU's and AFI's. And I remember talking to a professor at Baylor who they had a small they had a small graduate program there, which was kind of their focus was on new technologies. And this is two I mean this was nineteen ninety about four, I guess, or nineteen ninety five. And by that point Baylor was already moving out of high definition television, which, you know, at that point nobody most people hadn't even heard of it. But Baylor's the head of the department at the time had been a, a director of technology new technologies at Sony in his previous job. And so he brought that to Baylor. And so we would go to NAB as grad students and run Sony's high-definition equipment for him. So it was kind of in the culture there. And when I sat down and talked with him, he said, we're moving out of this. We're moving into this thing called nonlinear computer-based editing. And at the time, you know, it was either people either did VCR tape-to-tape kind of editing or obviously in the film world, they still cut film. So I... You know, kind of, I liked computers, and I had done enough editing in undergrad to 
to know that that sounded really cool. And I ended up going there, and I, I worked as a teacher's assistant, so I kind of got my school paid for. But at the time, then Baylor ended up getting one of the first AVIDs ever made, the computer editing system. And I just fell in love with it. And he, this mentor of mine, said, you know, if you... He said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a writer-director. I want to make my own stuff. And he said, well, the best advice I can give you is learn how to edit. Because you're telling the story, there will always be a job for you. And when when you do move to Los Angeles, you'll be working with filmmakers. And, like, what's a better film school than that? So by the time I, I left Baylor... I moved back to Kansas City, which is where I was from. I worked as a, a commercial and industrial editor for a while there and then finally packed up and moved to Los Angeles, you know, with the U-Haul and, and nothing else. And he was exactly right. Within a week, I had a job cutting my first feature, and, you know, it was low budget. But I think then within a year, I was working for Quentin Tarantino and then Premier Max and ultimately Robert Rodriguez. So I, was, I got into that post-production world really fast. What were you doing with Tarantino? I, I worked as an assistant editor on a documentary he made, um, and then I, at the time, Sally Menke, who was his editor, was considering moving from cutting film to the Avid. So I spent some time with Quentin showing him how the Avid worked, and which was really cool because he brought in a bunch of dailies from Pulp Fiction of scenes that had never made the movie and stuff that he'd never even cut together before. So we cut these scenes together from Pulp Fiction, which weren't in the movie. And um, then Sally came in and I showed her how the Avid worked and she and she hated it. So um, she ended up wanting to stay on film. So I did not move on with her. But then that was the time I got to know Robert Rodriguez and he asked me to come down to Austin and I became his assistant editor on the faculty. So post-production back then for Robert was just basically me and Robert in his garage with an Avid. So that was great. We just we We were the entire post outside of visual effects. Most of the works that we know you from are with a collaboration with your partner, Derek Haas. Tell me about the pros and cons of writing with a partner. There really aren't any cons. I mean, the only con is that you're splitting half the money with somebody, but ultimately we are way more productive. So, like, even that isn't a con. I mean, there's so much... In Hollywood, you do so much work on projects that have so little chance of going. I mean, even the best ones are hard to get made. So you kind of have to be as productive as possible Get, as, get involved in as many projects as you possibly can because it's just the odds are, you know, a bunch of them aren't going to go forward. So what Derek and I, what we did from the beginning was we never sat, we never worked together. In, in grad school, we wrote a script together and we tried, we were sitting in the same room and it was awful because we were both staring at the screen and we were complaining that, you know, you, you missed a comma there, you missed a period, you should da da da. And, you know, we, we, we realized this is not the way to do it. But when I moved to Los Angeles, Derek had, he was still in Atlanta at that point. He was working on it for an advertising agency. And he sent me basically a 70-page screenplay. And I read it and I said, I, I called him back and said, you know, this is great. Do you mind if I take a whack at some ideas? He goes, no, go for it. Well, then we'll write it together. So I basically I rewrote the script and I, I filled it out and turned it into a full-length screenplay. And that was a uh, script called The Courier, and that was the first thing we ever sold. So that then kind of became the way we worked, which was Derek and his wife moved to Los Angeles. They literally rented the apartment next to me and my wife. Our computers now shared a wall, but we still, to this day, don't sit in a room together. We don't work together. So um, the pros are, you know, there's a lot of ups and downs in this business. And 
you know, you get a lot of bad news at times. You get projects that aren't going forward. You don't get hired. You get fired. I mean, we were fired off wanted two different times. And when you get that bad news, it's really easy to get down. But when you have a partner, it's just so much easier to to just move forward in a positive manner, you know, and and and, and not take it personally, which which we really don't allow each other to do. How has the collaboration with you and Derek evolved? You you know, that first screenplay that he sent you with 70 pages, obviously it was incomplete and you just sort of rewrote it from there. Do you still work that way? Do you outline together and then sort of break off separately? How does that work? Yeah, when you put it that way, I re- realize we actually haven't evolved at all. I mean, he he's still 95% of the time will do the first draft. And he's just, Derek has an amazing capacity for volume. And I mean that in a, in a positive way. I mean, that first draft, you just got to get stuff down because, as we all know, writing is, is rewriting. And I will, if you get, when I've done first drafts, it takes me months, like the average writer, because, you know, I hem and I haw and I feel like i got to have everything figured out. And Derek has this ability just to go forward. And what works really well for us is if, if there's a point in a screenplay where he realizes this isn't working, he just keeps going. And knowing that I'm, I will come back through and figure it out. And to, I mean, together we will figure it out. And then I will do the rewrite. So still to this day, he just he can just power through things. I mean, he wrote, he's written four novels, you know, in the last couple of years. And he wrote his first novel without, with, without me even knowing. That was part of his plan. So one day a novel just showed up in my inbox and in my email. It's like, there said, I wrote this novel. Check it out. So he, he really can power forward in terms of getting the story down. And I think, my strength is coming in, figuring out what it needs to be, figuring out the characters, and and then just kind of finishing it off. Let's talk about your show, Chicago Fire, for a little bit. Tell me a bit about the show and how it all came together for you. Well, like most feature writers, um, we get get a phone call. We would get a phone call every fall from a television agent at WME, where our feature agent is. And they'd say, you know, are you, do you guys want to do television this year? And we, every year, would say no. And the reason we would say no is because our lives in the feature world were great. And um, at the time, you know, for the last five, six years, or I mean up until the last couple of years, television was a place where our friends who worked in television, they worked really hard and they didn't make us, you know, they, they did fine financially, but unless you created the show you were basically working for a paycheck. And that's something that Derek and I have always really been able to avoid. And we got a phone call, I guess it's two years ago, from an agent at WME who said, you know, I, I know you guys are going to say no, but there's, uh, NBC has a, they want to do a firefighter show with Dick Wolf. That's all they have, but it's a done deal, and they want to find some feature writers to write it. Are you interested? And at first we said no, and he said, what if I, we said no because, what we've always wanted was the ability to create a show. This is our dream. Create a show, have that show go on for years, us be able to walk away after we wrote the script, and then they just send us checks the rest of our life. Like, that's, that was our dream. And he just caught us at the right time. I had just uh, directed a movie called The Double that Derek and I wrote together that he produced. And um, we were coming off of that, and it was just like the right time. It just felt like the right time to try something different. And he said, you know, I think I can create a scenario where you guys just write the pilot and go away because it's Dick Wolf and, you know, Dick's team will take over and you will be the creators. And that sounded great. And we were kind of laughing behind the scenes going, you know, it's, it's an hour. It's, it's 50 pages. How hard can that be? Let's, so let's do it. So we, uh, we came in, we met with Dick, and um, he said, what do you guys want to do? Like they really didn't have 
anything for a show. We said, well, we'd like to set it in Chicago because it's a city that burned to the ground at one point in its existence, and and it's, it's a very visual city. It's got weather. It's got all the different things you want in terms of production value, and we'd like to set it there. And he said, great. And we said, but here's the thing. We kind of felt like this was going to be the killer for us. We said, we don't want to do Fire of the Week because you know, Law & Order is obviously the ultimate show in terms of you, you, you can tune in at any time and you haven't really missed anything. There's not a lot of character in the shows. And we said, we don't want to do that. We, you know, we, we want to make Hill Street Blues. We want to make ER. We want to tell arcing stories. We want to make this show about the characters, not about the fires and the rescues. And Dick said, you know, I started as a staff writer on Hill Street Blues. Let's, let's do that. And we had no idea. And so next thing you know, we're on an airplane going to Chicago trying to figure out the difference between a fire engine and a fire truck, which at the time we didn't even know. I'm curious about the, um, the writer's room and how you run the writer's room, because at this point now you're in charge of people. You're a writer, you're writing features, you're getting notes from producers and from network executives, but now you're in charge of handling writers and hiring writers. How does that process work for you? Well, we brought in a friend of ours. There's a, a guy who Derek and I have known for a long time, Matt Olmsted, who was the showrunner on NYPD Blue for a while. He was the showrunner on Prison Break all the way through. And he's a guy that Derek and I had this crappy band at one, one point together with, and that was our bass player. And uh, we figured if there was anybody who was going to come in and run the show the way we wanted it run, and if there was any chance we were going to stick around on the show, it would have to be somebody that we knew we could get along with and would have the same creative vision as, as us. It was Matt. And, and Dick didn't know Matt, so we had to push really hard. And Matt ended up getting the job. And so now it's just kind of turned into the three of us running the show. But we didn't know how to run a writer's room. We didn't know how to deal with network notes. I mean, when you get notes from a studio on a feature, a lot of those notes, and especially from a feature director, quite often those notes are a mandate. And you have to figure out how to do the best version of whatever that note is. When we get notes on Chicago Fire or on Chicago PD, what we've realized and what Matt has taught us is these aren't mandates. You know, we are ultimately in control of the show. I mean, if, if Dick comes down with something, we'll treat that as a mandate. We'll try and figure out the best version of it. But for the most part, we get to do what we want, and Matt brought his expertise in running a writer's room, hiring writers to what Derek and I were trying to do creatively. So that's just the way it's worked out. It's been great. How many writers are in the room? Currently, it feels like it's ever-changing. I think right now we have eight writers on staff on Chicago Fire, and we're, we're in the room at the beginning of the season. We're trying to break the whole thing. We try, like, for instance, in season two, we try to figure out the personal storylines for all, basically, ten characters of our, that we, we think about at the beginning of the season. We try to figure out their character arcs all the way up until the Christmas break. And at that point, like we don't even think about what are the calls, what are the the emergencies, what are the action scenes. We're, we're not even thinking about that. It's purely what are the relationships, what are these characters going to go through, and we and we use all the writers together, brainstorming on cracking those ten episodes, what those characters are, arcs are, and then we might then when individual writers get their episodes, it's up to them to fill in what the the calls might be that the firefighters get or the paramedics get to help push those character moments farther. 
It's interesting. The last guest on the podcast was Rebecca Cutter, who is a writer on The Mentalist. And she was saying that the way that that room works, because The Mentalist is one of those shows where each episode is essentially contained in itself. There's a, uh, a murder of the week or a crime of the week that gets solved at the end of the episode. There's no there's almost no collaborative process. The collaborating happens with overall arcing themes that sort of run through each season, which aren't a lot on a show like that. And the writers are sort of on their own. They come in with, I heard about this crime, or maybe we can base it on this type of murder, and then they just go off and write it. There's no breaking each beat of the episode. Does that happen? Is there sort of a mix between between the sort of isolation and the collaborative that can exist on a sitcom in your room? It doesn't It doesn't happen on our show. I mean, it does to the to the point that we will tell the writers go off, talk to our technical advisors, come up with some great calls that our guys can go on, but they have to fit this this model that we've created on the wall. And it's and then we will all get in and and the writer will pitch us what they want to do for their episode. But again it all remains within the character arcs that we're trying to do. And that goes back to Hill Street Blues or ER where, you know, we're just trying to make a show where you tune in because you like the characters and hopefully you then you you enjoy what that what the call might be. I mean, we were up against well, we were up against a kind of a wall when we first decided to do the show, and it turned out to be a benefit for us. But what we don't have, as what first responder shows don't have, and I think the reason why there haven't been a lot that have been successful, is that in general, first responders get there. Obviously, they help the people who are in dire need, and then they hand them off to the hospital, and then we don't fo- we don't ever find out the result of what happens to that person. Um, so NBC and Dick and everybody was saying, how do we get over this? Like what, that's not, like, you know, every med- medical show's work because a patient comes in, uh, the doctors that we love get to know that patient, we hopefully care about that patient, and by the time end of the episode, we find out what's happened to that patient, and that's how you can arc those shows. We don't have that luxury. So what we've done and what we what we created was we're purely just arcing our characters. We might have a guy that we meet at a call of some kind who we follow for a episode or two, but for the most part, it's our guys get, they're dealing with their personal stuff in the firehouse. There's a call. Our mandate to the writers is when that call's over and they come back to the firehouse, whatever personal things they were dealing with need to have changed based on the call, but we're not about the people that they're saving. And so, that's kind of new, and the shows, the first responder shows that have failed, I think that they, it, I can see why, because that's not a normal storytelling arc in television today. I want to ask you about writing in general and what mistakes you see young writers make most often. What we're always pushing our writers to do is to take bigger swing, and I see a lot of, I think the, the writers who don't succeed with us and the writers who specs that we read as we consider for staff that that don't impress us are the writers who don't take big swings. And by, by that I mean, what is a really bold move for one of the characters? And it can be anything from killing somebody, killing off a character, to we had an episode last year where one of our characters was faced with a faced with a moment where there was a guy in a burning room, and that guy was also putting pressure on his brother to be in the gang. And we had our guy close the door and let the guy die. And, like, that's a big swing. And I think... A lot of times it's really easy to fall into making choices that you feel are going to be palatable to the network or palatable to the audience and that everybody's a good guy and 
everybody makes good choices. And I, I, what we really like are when writers take big swings, even if they don't work, even if we have to dial them back a little bit, things that make us go, wow, holy shit, that was really something. What mistakes do you see in yourself in your own writing? Oh, boy, that's a tough one. Derek would tell you I'm, I'm terrible at the use of the word there. I always use the wrong version of there <laughs> everything that I do. Um, I think that uh, I think that I get sometimes I get too intellectual, especially in the in the first draft when I'm really I'm, I, I tend to believe that the audience is paying attention to every little word and every little nuance so specifically that they're exactly on board with me, and that sometimes it takes people to come in and say no. This isn't obvious. This needs to be bigger. This reaction needs to be bigger, um, which kind of goes along with the taking big swings thing. Like I've had to learn how to do that myself as well. Tell me about pitching and the pitching process in general. Tell me about your first pitch and how that wall went down. Oh, man. Well, the, the interesting thing about pitching is there is no, at least there was no, when we were in school and where we went to school, there was no, certainly no classes on how to pitch. And I remember our first pitch with was at Fox, and we went in with all these visual representations, these drawings that we had had done about what the movie was going to be, and I, I, I just think back about how horrible our pitch was, because I remember pitching the first act was 30 minutes, and we had everything figured out, and I can't imagine what the executives who were sitting there, you know, in this hot room in the middle of summer at Fox were thinking as we went through this whole thing. We were just too long, too detailed, not enough character. I mean, for me, pitch on Chicago Fire was very simple. Like I said, we got on an airplane. We went to Chicago. We didn't know anything. We went to a couple firehouses. We walked in. We said, hey, we're the Hollywood writers. Tell us your stories. And firefighters would just slowly get up and leave the room. And there was one time Derek and I, so there started with 15 guys in the room. And within 10 minutes, it was just he and I sitting there in their, in their lunchroom because the guys don't want to talk about that stuff. They don't want to tell their stories unless they trust you. And then we, we ended up in a firehouse where uh, we were talking to some guys who were on the engine, and the engine is the, carries the water. And there was another table in the middle of the firehouse where a bunch of guys were sitting, and we said, like, what's that table over there? And the engine guy said, oh, that's where the, the rescue squad guy said, That's the squad table. I'm like, oh, what's the squad table? They said, well, rescue squad, and what the rescue squads are like the, the elite guys, so like the Navy SEALs of the firefighters. They only go to fires um, or to high-rise rescues or things like that. And the engine guy's like, yeah, they're kind of the cocky assholes. Nobody really likes them. And so then we made our way over to the squad table, and we said, so tell us about rescue squad. And they said, you know, we're the best. Everybody wants to be on rescue squad. And then we saw, oh, God, there's con look, there's conflict right here inside this house, and it's just natural. So our what we came up with in our pitch to NBC was our two main guys, one is the head of the rescue squad, one is the head of the rescue truck, who technically are beneath the, the squad in terms of elitism. And we said there's tension right there. There's conflict. And that was our pitch. It wasn't about these are the rescues. This is what's going to happen. This kind of house is going to go up on fire. These guys are going to die. It was here are two guys, two leads of our show, who are, just by the nature of the jobs they have and the nature of where they sit in the house, at odds with each other. And that was that was our pitch, and it was simple, but then you could see the show going forward. I ask a lot of the actors who come on about unexpected obstacles that they face pursuing a career as an actor that no one really tells you about in acting school. 
What are those obstacles for writers? I mean, there's just so many. <laughs> you just you just hear no so many times. Um, there, you know, there's a there's a lot of great ideas out there that that you may have a great idea and you go in and you know it's a home run and it's just the wrong executive, the wrong mood in the room. Is it right after lunch? I mean, there's just so many ways that there's so many ways to say no to a writer with a pitch or a spec. So few ways to say yes. And I think that that, for me, was the biggest realization. We we wrote our first script. I was working for Robert in Austin. I gave it to a woman who's working on the movie. She gave it to a producer who gave it to her boss, who gave it to Brad Pitt's manager, who gave it to Brad. And Brad was attached, and that happened in the course of a week. And That's a good week. Yeah, no, no, it was definitely a good week. I, didn't, I never told Robert that I was writing. I got to drop it on him. Hey, I'm just sold a script, and Brad Pitt's attached. And but so that that all happened very easily for us. And then we get to Hollywood. That movie ends up falling apart. Brad, we had Gore Verbinski on to direct, and Brad and Gore left our movie at the last minute to go do the Mexican instead. Um, so that movie wasn't made and then we um, spent the next I guess 18 months taking meetings and pitching and not making a dollar and so you wonder you wonder about your own ability to write you wonder about your own ability to pitch because it was very easy to think at that point man maybe we just caught lightning in the bottle with that one script but we're not really destined to do this I'm curious about being involved in something that seems to have be having production problems. Uh, Wanted seems to be one of those. You mentioned earlier that you you got fired twice off of that film. It was always one of those films that it was sort of in the papers of production troubles and, you know, it's never going to get off the ground. They've already spent too much money to this. It's never going to get made. Then it ends up getting released and it makes money. What was it like being a part of a film that was, uh, at least it seemed on paper from the outside, to be chaotic at least? Well, I don't remember... I don't remember there being production chaos on Wanted. There was script chaos. There was, um, we, when we were brought on to Wanted, there was just one episode of the comic book, and of which there ended up being five or six issues of that, of that comic book. Um, there was just one issue. They had a great idea in the middle of it. We thought about a guy who lived in a cubicle who hated his life, and turns out he was a great assassin, had all these abilities. We loved that idea of a guy rising Who's like, he thinks his life is nothing, and he rises out of it. The um, So we wrote our version of it. Then Timor came on. Timor, at that point, hadn't done an English-language movie. He came on. He pitched us some ideas. They were so wacky and crazy. Derek and I kind of resisted a little bit, and then we got fired the next day. And they brought some a couple of other writers in to try and give Timor what he wanted. And then at some point, I guess, four weeks before production started when they were in Prague and building sets and stuff, they called Derek and I and said, look, the script has gotten out of hand. We've lost what it was. Can you guys come back and put everything in? And we flew to Prague and we walked in this room and they had built this giant loom, you know, with these threads coming down, incredibly huge set. It was very cool. Like, what the hell is this thing? And that was in an R script. And we go in and we sit down and I remember the Universal execs are there and the producers are there and Timor's there and we said, Okay, you know, let's we'll put all our stuff back in. But what's this? What's this thing we just saw? And they said, "Well, that's this loom, and we built it, and we think it's cool. So you got to figure out how to put that in the movie." <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the prop is now driving the script, and we, you know, we did our best, and we realized we had Morgan Freeman, and you know, when you have God playing a part, he can just say, "Well, the loom is 
is all knowing and it's whatever. And we were just we were kind of winging it at that point. Um, and we did our best to get it back to get things back on track. And I, I, you know, for the most part, I think we did a pretty good job. But then we, uh, yeah, then then it came time to do some reshoots, and and we said to them, they said we want to add. We saw a first cut of the movie, and they said we want to add a like a prologue to this movie about how this loom came to be, and like describing and like the ancient weavers of whatever. Like no, 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 no. The point was to put the loom in the background as much as possible. That's the whole reason you brought us back in. And they said, yeah, well, you're fired again. So we got fired again. They brought some <laughs> other writers in to write this prologue, which they shot, and then that never made the movie. So um, it was it was rocky for us, for sure. But uh, uh, in the end, I think it's, it's a fun movie, at least. How do you handle a note from a director or from a studio executive that you know will ruin the movie? that you know you're just getting some sort of note right now that whatever it is they're adding, it's another plot, it's essentially another movie that they want you to do that will not make any sense to what you have, that one note that happens that you're like, oh, no, we're screwed. Yeah, you know, now I think we would gracefully exit if, if it was that serious. If it was a note that we couldn't talk our way out of or if we couldn't... I mean, for me, I think every note is valid in that it's telling you something as a writer, even if, like, it's so easy as a writer for, for when you hear a note, like, when somebody says, I don't understand how the briefcase got into the airplane. And, you, and like, as a writer, and if you say, oh, well, on page 40, you know, you, I have the guy carrying the briefcase, and he slips it in. If, if an executive says, oh, well, I missed that, it's easy for a writer to say, well, you're an idiot executive. You should have you read more carefully. But the, I think what the gist behind every note is something failed in your script. Then in that moment, if the executive missed it, yes, maybe the doorbell rang and he skipped the page, but chances are you didn't set it up well enough that they had to pay attention to it. So if you get a, if you get a note that may be so ridiculous and so out there, I would at least try and, and look at it from what this might not be the solution that they're throwing at us, but it's at least an indication of a problem. And let's see if we can figure out what that problem is. Go to them and say, look, I, I, we think we know what you're feeling here. Here's our better version of the fix. And if, if it turns into a mandate of, no, we want something completely different, then, I mean, at some point you have to make a choice of, am I the right guy to be writing? Is being a working writer what you expected it to be? It is. You know, television is, is totally different. I mean, Derek, we've never spent more time in front of a computer than we have the last year and a half. We've never written more pages. You know, we wrote and produced 24 episodes last year, and now we've done, between the two shows, we've done another 20 episodes so far this year. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's that's 200, what is it, 224, 50 hours of television, something like that. So, and then, you know, in a feature career, I mean, you have a great career if you get five movies made in features. And We've been lucky enough to make five movies ourselves so far, so we're really proud of that. But feature production is so few and far between. The writer tends to be so kind of low on the totem pole by the time production comes around that I think that was the thing that surprised me the most, that when production comes around, depending on your relationship with the director, you may or may not be on set at all. And you have certainly have no control over what the words are at that point. So that was the biggest surprise. But the, in a good way, my biggest, the biggest surprise in television is we write the words and they say them how we wrote them 
period. I mean, there, there's almost zero discussion on changing things once the script is done and we're in production. I wonder if you find yourself in a situation in film, I think one of the things you have, especially leading up to production, is time. On television, you're on a schedule, you need a new episode every week. There must be times when you feel like what you're putting out, the episode you're shooting, is not as strong as other episodes. Do you just sort of go ahead with it? How do you handle those situations? Yeah, I mean, certainly there are episodes that you feel are stronger than others. You know, every script needs rewriting. There does come a point, certainly in the feature world, where things start to go sideways and then start to go backwards. And um, I don't think anybody's first draft is ever ready to go, but I do think that there's a point where you start to, to overdevelop things. And in a perfect world in television, you develop it just to the point where it's at its best and you get it out there. I think the episodes for me that tend to not be the best, and it's just, it's just the nature of the beast, is you can't you can't have the episode every week where everything goes crazy and every emotional string is pulled. I mean, you have to set some of that stuff up. So certainly there are episodes within, say, a four-episode arc that we kind of try and figure out. Episode two and three might be things that we know we're using to set up the big event that's going to happen in episode four. And by a big event, I mean the big character event, something that's going to happen to somebody or what somebody's going to do. So um, those episodes, I guess they tend to be looked at as maybe not as good as the other ones just because they're not as memorable. But the point is, without those, you wouldn't have the one that really walloped people. What advice would you give to young writers looking to break in? Read as much as you can. Keep writing. Know that um, the, the stuff that you write especially the first few things and those first few drafts, as good as your mom may think it is and all your friends, it's probably not that good. I mean, I look back at the script that put us where we are, that got everybody excited and people were reading it all over town and it was one of those big spec deals and Brad Pitt was on board. I look back and read that script and I just see all the immaturity in our writing, the lack of character, the lack of depth and things. There was lots of cool stuff and there were some fun twists but it didn't have the depth of character that I think we found now. And I truly, just speaking personally, I did not know what character was until I'd been an active writer for five years. I thought I did, and I could I could define it for you, but I couldn't necessarily write it. And I didn't write movies from characters' points of view. I wrote movies, and Derek, Derek and I wrote movies that tended to be fun plot movies, but that weren't driven by a character and Wanted and then 310 to Yuma were the movies where I, and the scripts that we did were like, this is driven by a character. This is a guy who hates his life, who's given something new. 310 was, this is a rancher who wants to take care of his family. He'll do anything to take care of his family. That drives the movie. And so then the plot just falls into place when your character is driving the movie. And that's something we didn't know at the beginning. You've been listening to Michael Brandt. Michael is the co-creator of Chicago Fire. New episodes of Chicago Fire return to NBC Tuesday, January 7th at 10 p.m. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Michael W. Brandt. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thank you very much. 